Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, to discuss what it will take for markets to enter a recessionary environment and what he thinks of recent earnings. And with earnings season well underway, many companies are reporting better than expected numbers. But despite these results, Urian says he doesn't expect the Fed will give markets an easy out, with a recession expected to occur three to nine months after the yield curve's most inverted point. Urian adds, if we are reaching peak inversion now, which he doesn't know if we will, he says we are pretty inverted and have been for some time. So you can argue that maybe later this year, that's when a recession could start. Urian explains to host Pamela Ritchie that declines in earnings have largely been the result of shrinking profit margins following inflation. He says that the top 10 S&P mega caps continue to move the market, but that 87% of stocks in the S&P 500 remain above the 50-day moving average, which is a big difference from the last several months. This episode was recorded on July 24, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. We mentioned sort of all the big pieces there and we've got the Fed this week. So so where should we begin? Are we still in the earnings week because everyone knows the Fed is going to move or is that all wrong? Uh, yes, earnings are, are earnings season is underway, of course. 80 Seven companies have reported so far, but uh, and so far the numbers have been good, about 76% beating estimates by an average of 6% or so. Uh, so the 70% is pretty normal, but this is pretty generous so far. But we have 40% of the index reporting this year. So this year, uh, the, this week, sorry. So this week will really be <clears throat> uh, what really tells us about whether the second quarter earnings season, a repeat of the first quarter, which came in far less negative than was expected. So that's earnings. And of course, we have the Fed. We also have the ECB. Bank of Japan is meeting as well, where they're going to talk about whether to continue defending their their, their rate caps. Uh, so we have a, a, a busy week. And when you put it all together, you know, the market has is rallying <clears throat> on a narrative that uh, a, there will be a soft land, and the, the Fed is going to go a little bit more this week, and all likelihood, you know, it's priced into the market, so the option. Uh, but the Fed's going to keep job owning, right? Because when you think about inflation, it's coming down in the U.S., but that the Fed really is focused, see that in slide 17, PCE, is very sticky, right? It's, it's only down a little bit from its peak last year right the cpi has gone from plus nine to plus three but the core pce is only down to about four and a half so uh the fed is above that right it's at five and a quarter i think the fed will not give the markets an easy out um and so 
uh, you know, the market has has rallied on a certain outcome, and now that outcome actually needs to uh, come to fruition. Slide nine now. Slide nine. And that slide, inflation in the Fed, was tweeted on July 25th. So you see the core PCE, uh, it peaked at 5.4. It's down to 4.6, which obviously is better than 5.4, but it's nowhere near the decline that we saw in the CPI, which has gone from 9 to 3. So, you know, the Fed is above that, right? So the Fed is properly restrictive, restrictive no matter how you look at it. Uh, like the tips break evens are at two and a quarter, so the Fed is about three percentage points above that. Um, but you know, like the notion of a Fed pivot, which you can see in the dotted line, that is what's priced into the forward curve. That's just not going to happen until that purple line comes down a lot more, and that may take some time. So, so the, the you know, so the, the the Fed narrative, even if it's in the ninth inning of rate hikes, uh, you know, the next question becomes. How long does it stay up there before coming back down to what presumably is, is a neutral policy, which would be around three and a half percent, I think. Right. Interesting. But you expect the, the discussion, I mean, not that the market necessarily believes it, but you expect the hawkish talk to still be there. Yes, because when you look at financial conditions, which I don't uh, actually, I uh, no, I don't have it, but financial conditions have loosened, right? So financial conditions are are real-time indicators based on stock prices, the dollar, credit spread, short rates, long rates. Um, they have loosened quite a bit because the market is sort of declaring victory, and that's why um, the Fed will probably try to push back on that. With that said, though, I mean, I, this is something that you just said to, to us a couple of minutes ago before we came on air, but the PCE, the indicator that the Fed likes sort of the most on the inflation front, it, it is not demonstrating inflation sort of shooting down in, in the way that some of the other indicators are. So to what extent is it just hawk is chalk, and to what extent are they actually concerned it hasn't quite come down yet? I, I think they're concerned because basically the parts that are being sticky on the inflation front have to do with consumer spending. And in the US, you know, people pretty much have jobs if they want them. Um, and wages are now exceeding inflation because inflation at, at the headline level is coming down. And um, and you know the the debt burden among consumers is not that high. You know, that was a problem during the financial crisis, but now homeowners, you know, they turned down their debt a, a few years ago. They're sitting on a three percent fixed rate mortgage. And so they're relatively immune to what the Fed is doing until they have to sell their house and buy a new one with a 7% mortgage. So so that, that consumer, right, which is 70% of the economy, is has been resilient. And that is really the only thing left for the Fed to solve for. We're good because energy prices have come down. And so the headline CPI is down. Even the rent stuff um, it, you know, that has a longer lag time just because of the way leases work and everything. So I think the Fed is content that that will come down as well. But that kind of that that's super core inflation, um, you know, there are no signs of that abating. I mean, just try to get on an airplane or book a hotel and you see that the inflation is still pretty, pretty strong there. You know, just sort of things that you've said before, but it's a really interesting illustration of how Recessions can come about in many different ways, often from from a tightening cycle that goes too far. I mean, that's that's sort of one that most people know. 
um, but there's also the shock side of things. So just take us through sort of what it takes to get a recession, how far along the road we are. Yes, so let's pull up slide 18. And the next slide titled history was tweeted on July 25th. I'm getting this question a lot. It's like, how do we <clears throat> prepare for the recession? What do we do to our portfolio? How can we time around that, that drawdown that does usually happen during recession? And, uh, you know, if there was an easy playbook here to execute on, uh, we would all be doing it. But in my, in my view, you need to know four things uh, to get this right. And one is, you know, when does a recession start? Two is, you know, how long does it last? Three is how bad will it get? And four is how much of that is priced into the market already? And those are four things that nobody really knows. Maybe you know one or two, but you're not going to know all four. And what and we can see this year, right, the first half of this year, the market has climbed this wall of worry because everyone was sort of intellectualizing this recession and it refuses to show up. But but here's your, you know, here's your guide going back 100 plus years and you see the yield curve in the top. And we do know that that is a pretty surefire indicator that when the yield curve inverts, uh, eventually, sooner or later, a recession does happen. It's just we just don't know how sooner or how later. And when you think about that yield curve, uh, really, that's a reflection of policy, right? When the Fed really slams on the brakes uh, and tightens, you know, very severely, eventually short rates are going to go above long rates. That creates, you know, a credit crunch in the economy because banks stop lending then and banks tend to be the lifeblood of the economy. And so that's kind of how that whole train gets going. And if we can pull up a visual on slide 19. And the next few slides are real Fed rate tweeted on July 25th and yield curve tweeted on July 26th. There's not an easy way to put this in a chart because the leads and lags are so variable. But if you look at it kind of as a heat map, so these are all the recessions going back to 1926, and I've included also the soft landing of 1994, just because the soft landing is sort of the scenario that a lot of the a lot of people are betting on. And you can see kind of during the 18 months prior to the start of the recession, what happens to real rates on the short end. So it's real rates that matter more than nominal rates. And you can see that real rates currently are, are pretty restrictive. And you can see that in the current cycle, we obviously don't know a, whether there will be a recession or when it starts. So it's a little misleading to show all the numbers there through that red line, but that's based on the forward curve um, and on current tips uh, break-evens. And so what I'm basing that the timing on is how, you know, it's sort of the, the peak, the expected peak for real rates, which is in the coming, you know, three, four months or so. So my if I had to guess uh, when the recession will happen, it'll be, uh, my guess would be around around the turn of the year going into next year, but even then, right? If it's a if it's a shallow recession, uh, you don't really um, have to worry too much. And if it's a long one attached to a financial crisis, which I certainly don't expect, but that was the financial crisis in '08. That was like a, 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 a you know that was kind of like a double whammy because you have a, a, a business cycle contraction and this whole balance sheet uh, you know drama around it. But if we go to the next slide, you can see the yield curve um, around these inflection points. And this this uh, visual doesn't show the beginning of the inversion because that's where the lead times are are indeed very variable. Like for instance, the 
financial crisis started in late 07, well into 08, um, and the curve first inverted in 06, right? So you have almost two-year lead time there. But what you see here is where I've highlighted in the little boxes is the peak inversion. So when the curve achieves its, uh, you know, reaches its most inverted point, and that tends to happen somewhere around three to nine months before a re recession starts. So if we are reaching peak inversion now, which I don't know if we will, but we are pretty inverted and we have been for some time, then again, you can argue that maybe you know it, later later this year would be when the recession starts. But again, there's so many variables. Um, in my in my humble opinion, I think just having a well divorced diversified portfolio uh, where you try to reach you know for your for your desired outcome while still sleeping at night uh, is probably a better strategy than trying to time around these drawdowns because you need to get too many sequential things right to get there. Slide 24. And the next slide is recession timeline, tweeted on July 26. That's just kind of takes it away from the from the uh, from the heat map to a chart where I've highlighted a couple of uh, different cycles. Uh, so you got 1970 on the upper left. Uh, that was an interesting recession just because uh, kind of this whole glamour stock uh, bubble burst in 68 that ushered in the nifty 50, which of course is a phenomenon that we're dealing with again. Um, and and so, and then on the right-hand side, you have 1974, 73 to 75, which of course was a very big bear market. That was the high inflation one. And then on the bottom, you've got the financial crisis, 08, this SNL crisis, the savings and loan crisis in 1990, and of course the tech bubble in 2000 uh, to 2002. And what I'm showing here is the uh, the real Fed funds rate, um, and the orange uh, dots is um, the change in the unemployment rate. So I showed that other chart before where you saw all the, the yield curve with the unemployment rate. And the point of this chart is just to highlight that there is almost always uh, a lead time for when the Fed gets restrictive and then eventually uh, you know the, the the curve inverts and then eventually after that you get the recession and of course the unemployment rate usually goes up and you can see that in 1970 it was 19 months in 1973 it was only two months in 08 it was 14 months in 1990 it was 16 months in 01 it was uh, either 30 months or three months depending on how how you, how you look at it and so the point again is that there is not one single cookie cutter thing that okay we are now six months out and this and that has happened and therefore the recession happens uh, you know in such a way so it's it's not the markets the market gods never make it that easy and I think uh, this year is proving uh, to be the case as well. Fascinating. No, it's it, it's so fascinating. I was I was going to ask you about that 1990, the savings and loans. There sometimes have been comparisons to what we saw in March of this year, just to sort of the the liability mismatch. Um, is there anything in there? I mean, we were worried in March that uh oh maybe this is the recession, right, or the beginning of it. But that that appears to yeah, have well, a big drawn under it for now. Yeah. Well, in in March we had the the banking tremors, of course. We had Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, a signature bank, and that I think was the first time you could really see the cracks uh, coming from the Fed's you know very aggressive tightening cycle. Uh, but it was really just kind of isolated in that space because when you look at 
the, the rest of the banking system, you know, the, the, the mega cap banks, and maybe we pull up slide 17 here. The next slide is titled Yield Curves, tweeted on July 28th. Kind of on the other side of this, right? I mean, and, and this is one of the reasons why I think the economy actually remains so resilient, right? We have homeowners having turned out their debt at low rates. That's one, one chunk of it. We have uh, corporates doing the same thing. But if you look at the mega banks, right, uh, the JP Morgan's, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they, they fund their loans or their assets out of deposits, right? And the bank and the loan to deposit ratio is 70%. It's lower than it has been because banks are more highly regulated. I mean, if you look at that gray spacing in the chart, it was 106% in 08. And of course, then we had the crisis and then banks got super regulated and uh, then, then COVID happened. So it's gone up to 70% now. But those deposits are, are you know, the banks are basically paying next to nothing to depositors. It's 0.55%. So in a way, the mega banks, not, not the regional or the community banks, but the mega banks are funding themselves with free money. Uh, and they're not passing those savings onto their customers, right? If you're a customer of, of any bank, you're, you're going to pay market rates, which is what the Fed is setting. But it's another, it's another, um, a piece of evidence of why parts of the economy have been so resilient um, because, you know, if you're a very large bank, you're making loans, your your funding costs are near zero. Um, and so why would you re restrain lending if you do that? If you're a small bank, yes, because your deposits are leaving uh, in search of higher yields, which it can get from money market funds or T-bills. So it's it's another element. And, and, it's, and in, in retrospect, when those bank tremors happened in March, uh, it really was just of that, you know, in that smaller cohort of banks, but not, not the big mega banks, which of course is where a lot of the lending is taking place. Yeah, fascinating. There's an article, I don't even know where I was reading it, but just sort of, you know, chiming in to make the case of if people still had to go into bank branches, which are very quickly being closed everywhere, as everyone knows. Um, maybe for not everything, because you can do a lot of it, but maybe more things. You'd have those relationships. You'd have those face-to-face -face for more things. People might be less quick to hit the button and transfer their their deposits yeah. elsewhere. I don't know. I thought it was an interesting exactly. uh, argument. Yeah. Um, yes, so you were asking about earnings. Yeah, let's go uh, before I. Um, so yeah, so earnings season's underway. If we go to slide 11. And the next three slides are as follows. Earnings estimate progression and market breadth both tweeted on July 24th and GDP growth estimates tweeted on July 27th. We really don't know very much yet other than the very early readings that we've gotten so far, but, but you know, this will be a pivotal week and again, the market is betting on a recovery. Um, uh, so just to, to go back for a moment, in 2021, we had the base effects of the reopening of the economy in the US. Yep. So earnings growth went to plus 50%. And then in 2022, of course, the Fed slammed on the brakes, earnings growth slowed as it always does eventually. Uh, it was still plus 8%, although X energy was about flat. And then this year, the earnings growth number is expected to be about minus three. Uh, and then next year in 2024, it's expected to be plus 10. 
right? So that's that's your that's a soft landing if there ever was one. And you can see here the progression. I've shown this chart a number of times, but you can see the black line is the Q2 number. The red line was Q1, and and the the, the, the important part about Q1 was that coming into earnings season, expectations were that uh, earnings growth would be minus 9%, and we ended up seeing a large bounce because companies posted much better numbers uh, than, than were expected, and the quarter ended up being minus 3, which of course is still negative, but you know Q4 of last year was minus 2, Q1 minus 3, and so it's now up to Q2 to see if that same pattern can be repeated. Um, and, um, and that will tell us whether this notion of a soft landing and a healthy rebound next year, uh, because next year, the, right now, earnings are about $215 a share. And next year, they are expected by the consensus estimates to go up to $240 a share. And my guess is that that may be a little bit high. but. The reason why that's important is because we're in this phase of the cycle, or we are potentially in this phase of the cycle, that if the market's correct and we do get uh, a recovery in earnings in 2024, typically the market, which always looks ahead, <clears throat> will rally in anticipation of that. And typically the PE expansion that you tend to see um, is around 40 to 50%. And uh, if we pull up slide four, you can see that. And so a 40 to 50% gain in the PE multiple would take you from 15, uh, which was the low in October, to about you know, 21, maybe 22. And guess what? We've basically done that, right? We've gone from 15.3 to now 20.2. So the market has rallied five PE points on the assumption that the earnings recovery will happen. And so a couple of things can go wrong with this, right? A, the earnings recovery may not happen or it won't happen as much. So instead of 240, maybe it's only 230. Uh, and then you multiply, you know, 20, 21 times that number instead of the 240. I mean, it's not a huge difference, but it does make a difference. And then, you know, that part about the Fed that we were talking about, usually the market can look past these valleys uh, with the help of easier monetary conditions. and. That is very much an open question with the Fed. I mean, I, it's not something I would be betting on. So my, my sense is that you know, the market was kind of overly cautious. Uh, the consensus has been proven wrong first half of this year. Uh, certainly the economic projections have increased. And actually, why don't we pull up slide two? Uh, because that, that is a nice way of showing that the GDP uh, consensus estimates you know, were proven to be much uh, more conservative than they should have been. So. You see a bunch of squiggles here, kind of looks like my earnings chart, but these are the, 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 the GDP estimates uh, for the U.S. And you can see those big red lines, of course, that was 08, and again, uh, the pandemic. Uh, so that black line is the 2023 number. The estimates were for 2.5% growth, which is about what growth normally is, and it fell to 0.3, and it's now back up to one5 while the orange line, which is for next year, has now fallen to 0.6. So none of these estimates suggest uh, a recession because that would be negative growth, of course. But you can see that the market is saying, well, maybe it's not canceled, but at least it's, it's postponed, and maybe this will happen next year. But still, 
uh, going from two and a half to 0.3 to 1.5 would be consistent with the soft landing you know, narrative that at least is in the market. But uh, a lot needs to go right here, um, especially now that sentiment has started to flip to much more constructive levels. Right. Yeah. You just don't want to over the skis analogy comes in. A um, couple of questions here, Gurian, for you. So one of them is just taking a look at that headline inflation. Um, are we going to see it decrease? But are which are the aspects that will remain sticky uh, and, and perhaps a concern? So, so the sticky parts, and there's even a term for it now. It's, so we know that core inflation strips out food and energy. And obviously, especially the energy part has been weak, although it's 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 rebounded a, a little bit. But oil's gone from 120 to to 70. It's now at 78. Uh, but that that core part, that super core part, even when you um, take out shelter, right? So housing, which again works on on long uh, lag times, just because the way the real estate market works, uh, what you're left with is basically services spending. Um, uh, and and that has proven to be rather sticky. And again, like you know, if you do any traveling, uh, there's still some. I mean, I travel a lot. I still have sticker shock as to what what things are costing and how much a hotel room costs and and all these services. So that's the part that the Fed is solving for. And you know, it's like nobody wants to admit it, but the only way you're going to solve for that is if people run out of money to spend. And usually. That happens when people lose their jobs, and so that's the, the irony is that you know the Fed has a dual mandate: full employment, price stability. And just a couple of years ago, during the pandemic, the Fed went out of its way. It says, you know, we want everybody to have a job. We're, we're not going to we're not going to tighten policy until everyone's back in the boat. And now, implicitly, the Fed is basically solving for some unemployment because how else do you get this kind of core services spending down? Um, and, and that's and that's you know the unfortunate irony um, of where we are, and it shows you know the duality, if you will, of the Fed's dual mandate. You know sometimes the, their two mandates are working directly uh, in opposition of each other. So the other question that's coming in takes us back to sort of the question of of metals broadly, but but kind of given what we've seen in gold um, of late, and I guess this is more of a sector specific discussion. Yeah, uh, I mean, gold, it's, you know, it's not a great time for gold right now because, uh, or, or Bitcoin for that matter, um, because gold, of course, is a, is a store of value and it's a, it's a real rate play, right? So uh, when real rates go down, which typically is what happens in a recession when the Fed's cutting rates, uh, uh, gold shines, uh, no pun intended, uh, <clears throat> because negative real rates means you're losing purchasing power if you're invested in bonds, for instance. Um, but we're on the other side of that. Real rates are positive, and they're generally been getting more positive. So that's not a great catalyst for gold until the cycle turns, right? So again, coming back to those visuals that we showed earlier, if we're getting to a recession, maybe the end of the year into next early next year, and that forces the Fed's pivot, and actually we can pull up slide A to, to show you what the market is pricing in for a Fed pivot. Um, at that point, I think gold will do will do well again uh, because the Fed would then be cutting rates uh, out of necessity, right? Because then you have a recession, and and you know no, um, nothing kills inflation faster than a recession, right? So that would be the kind of the, the, the scenario 
but we need to get there first, and 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 we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, so that's something we have to wait. And on in terms of industrial metals, you know, uh, the economy generally is slowing. It's we're not in a recession, obviously. Um, Europe is a little weaker. China has been a disappointment this year. I mean, I, I think I was certainly one of them that thought um, the economy would really, really lift off, and it has to some degree, but not in a way that would boost sort of raw materials. So, so metals, commodities in general, I think are still in their down cycle. There'll be another up cycle, but um, I, I think we need to get sort of past this whole landing scenario first. Yeah. Interesting. Other question. Um, yeah, those are really sort of the broad aspects. So, what would what would you say? Sort of into this week, you've you've gone across a number of different things. It is a very busy week. What what is probably the single most important thing? Is it the earnings story? Um, the the earnings really need to come through here. So again, if Q2 can do a repeat of Q1, and actually let's pull up slide 13. The next slide is titled S&P 500 Revenues Tweeted on July 28th. Then I think that would really give the bulls, the the economic bulls, um, a sense that, okay, you know, Q1 was not just a fluke. And and, and maybe they're right. Like, if you look at this chart, this this shows sales. So this is revenues per share. There is no, there's barely even a a slowdown on this chart, you know, um, and certainly not a, an actual reversal. So uh, the, the top line is still making new all-time highs. That is in nominal terms, of course. In real terms, not, not so much, but generally we look at these things in nominal terms. And so any decline we've seen in earnings, and we've seen a modest one, uh, you know, so far this year, about 3%, has really just been um, – caused by by shrinking profit margins because of inflation, a slight slowing down, uh, stimulus money having been spent, et cetera, et cetera. But but so far, the fundamentals remain pretty good. But again, the market has rallied five PE points in anticipation of this, so it needs to happen. So if if you believe earnings are not going to recover, and obviously, if we do get a recession, uh, there would be another dip in earnings, and if that happens at a time when the Fed is saying, you know, not so fast, and the market has rallied five PE points, it, it doesn't really argue for a lot more gains in the market. And if anything, it argues for, uh, you know, uh, for the market to give back some of those gains. But I look at revenues, uh, it, I look at slide five, for instance, you know, this is the equal weighted S&P. And the next two slides are as follows. S&P 500 equal weighted index, and market leadership both tweeted on July 24th. You know, slide five shows that that's a pretty good looking chart. I mean, that looks like a large base and we have the breadth, right? As you mentioned in your opening, 87% of stocks in the S&P are above their 50 day moving average. You can see here, 20 day advances minus declines, pretty robust. Uh, it could still be a big range um, and maybe we're making a high in this range, but Still, this has been a long time uh, in the making now. Markets have been in this range now for well over a year. And uh, the broader tape is kind of doing what it should be doing. And and if we do one more slide, I know we're running out of time, but the previous slide, slide three, we all know that this has been a, a market moved by the mega caps. That's the gray line, the top 10 largest companies in the S&P. And for a while, for, until about 
a few months ago, it was just those top 10 and nothing else was moving, right? That orange line was just going sideways. Now the top 10 is still leading, but the rest of the market is following. And that, that's a big difference between what we saw a few months ago. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a great chart to end on. Yuri and Timur, thank you very much for setting us up for this, this week ahead, a busy week. Uh, we wish you good luck and, and thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.